Hey, everybody. It's Pastor Chad. Today is Sunday, December 24th, 2021. Uh, welcome to The Way Radio Live. I'm glad you're here to join us. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Mom and Dad. Good to see you guys. It's been a crazy week. Uh, a lot of Americans are trying to figure out what the heck is going on in America and how things could have worked out the way they have. I'm not going to comment too much on that today. I might get into some of that stuff next week. I think we get too carried away with politics in America and it can become a bit of a an obsession. What I will say is uh, I think we need to be patient. I study a lot of, or I follow a lot of very uh, astute political commentators, people that are very familiar with what's with what's going on with the deep state and those that have been trying for so long to uh, corrupt and take over America, which it seems like they were victorious in doing and getting Biden and Harris into office. But uh, this is strictly my opinion, but I would just uh, ask people to be patient. My opinion is that with Biden's long history of uh, crime and corruption, uh, the things he's involved with regarding uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the ever-increasing uh, pile of evidence that they continue to compile proving voter fraud. Uh, I don't think he's going to be in office probably any longer than six months from the way it looks. Could be wrong, but but some people are really believing that's, that that's the case. So the reason I share that at the beginning is I think we need to focus on the word. We need to live our lives. We need to live joyously. The Lord tells us to rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Uh, so don't basically let's give ourselves a break as these things are worked out and uh, pray for our leaders as we're commanded to do. Biden is not legally a leader. Uh, so I would be praying that uh, he's brought to repentance. He's brought to belief that he turns from the darkness that he's uh, been involved in for so long. Uh, and we pray that a, a true, genuinely elected leader uh, would take the place of president. So I think that's how we need to pray. But I'm going to get into that later. Like I said, the title of today's sermon is Division Because of Christ. And it's based on John 7, verses 40 through 53. Let's pray quickly and we will get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we're able to gather here online, that you blessed us with the ability to do so technologically. And Lord, uh, I just ask that uh, we would be able to uh, take a break from the turmoil and the stress and the chaos that has embroiled our country and so much of this world for so long now. And and uh, we would turn away from the darkness that was 2020 and we would uh, look to you and that we would abide in you and your word and your truth and your light and that we would strive to serve you to the best of our abilities and beyond of our, our abilities because of the grace that you bless us with. Lord, I just ask that you'd uh, open the hearts and the minds and the spirits of each person that hears this message, uh, that you would edify us and strengthen us as believers. And for those that don't know you, Lord, that you would... Uh, Reveal to them the truth of the gospel and uh, the amazing person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Title of the message, <clears throat> excuse me, division, <clears throat> excuse me, division because of Christ based on John 7, 40 through 53. If you've got your Bibles, I recommend uh, following along. If not, I'm going to read these scriptures and then we'll go through them. Uh, in sections like I usually do. John 7, 40 through 53. Some of the people, therefore, 
when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who had come to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then uh, it closes in John 7, 53, Everyone went to his own home. So what we see here is, is one of the many episodes of Christ's life and ministry recorded in the book of John. But there's a great lesson, as in all of Christ's lessons, you know, all of that we read about Christ, there's, there's a very important lesson for us in this portion of scripture for the time in which we live in the modern church and also in the world in which we live. I think it's very important for us to understand what is meant by true unity in the body of Christ, unity with believers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, unity in the church, and then the unity that we hear talked about so much in the world right now. You know, many of our very, very corrupt and evil leaders are saying, you know, now we need to be unified and everybody basically needs to get along. That's a very, very foolish statement if you look at the world through through Christian eyes and you see things from the perspective of Christ and his gospel, you realize that there is no such thing as true unity in a worldly sense with the Christian faith, because we are, if we're Christians, we are followers of Christ abiding in him far behind enemy lines. So I'm not saying that we need to create animosity with the world needlessly, but what I'm saying is we have opposing viewpoints, opposing perspectives, uh, directly opposing doctrines between the world and Christ. So true unity is never possible there. There's always going to be that uh, that friction and that uh, that friction and that tension and that battle that has been there since the beginning of time and that we're seeing so vividly right now carried out in the world around us. So let's look at verses 40 through 42, John 7, 40 through 42. It says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So what we're seeing here is examples of different responses to the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he was preaching. That's why this is such a valuable lesson because we see different ways that different people from different walks of life and different belief systems view Christ and his gospel. 
But notice in verse 40, it says, when they heard these words, and they're referring back immediately to the verses immediately before this, John 7, 37 through 38. Put this on the screen for you guys. Sorry, I missed the first one. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, he had preached, obviously, much before this. People were familiar with who Christ was, and they had heard about him. But this is where he is preaching at this, beast of, uh, at this feast of booths, and he stands up and he makes this proclamation. And what he's referring to is the Holy Spirit that had not been poured out yet because Christ was still in the world physically. But he's referring to the river of living water that believers would be blessed with when they have been blessed with repentance and belief and faith in Jesus Christ. So this is what the people are referring to when they say, when they heard these words. This was the verses immediately preceding what we're looking at today. But what we're going to see as we go through this, and what we're going to learn is that we must not be ignorant. We must not be ignorant as Christians. Don't and and part of this is to understand that we can't rely on what others claim without testing it in the light of scripture. This is absolutely vital to the Christian life and it's a, it's especially vital for the times in which we live. Don't rely on what others claim without testing it in the light of Scripture. Now, a great way to give you an example of the damage that's done when we do not test the spirits is to look at all the people that are trapped in false teachings. Because if they really understood, uh, you can say 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, with, which talks about the, the all-sufficient and the, and the ultimate authority is God's word in Scripture, and that's what we're, we use to test everything with, they wouldn't be trapped in the false teachings that they're trapped in. It is very easy to disprove teachings like Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventists, Roman Catholicism. It's very easy to prove that these teachings are all corruptions of the Christian faith, that they are not grounded in the true Christ that we only come to know through his word. It's very easy for Christians to see that, but those that are trapped in those false beliefs cannot see it. Why? Because they have not been trained to test the spirits according to, according to scripture. And you cannot test the, the spirits unless you are being led and having your eyes and your mind and your spirit open by the Holy Spirit. You see? So this is very important. We must not be ignorant as Christians. We must strive to grow in our knowledge of Christ, his word, his gospel. Acts 17, 10 and 11 says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So Paul and Silas were not offended that the Bereans took the things that they had heard from Paul and Silas. They listened to their sermons. They listened to the things they were claiming to them. And instead of rejecting them, or instead of blindly accepting them, what did they do? 
they held them up to the light of Scripture, and they were commended for that. Now, down through church history, the word Berean is used as a compliment for people who take the time to test the spirits according to Scripture. You see? Very, very important for, thing for us to understand. You cannot have discernment if you're not testing things according to Scripture, according to God's Word. So they were commended for examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They tested what they were taught. Because it agreed to, with Scripture, many of them came to believe. Now notice in verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is a very interesting verse. They're rejecting Christ as the Messiah. These people understand the Torah. They understand Old Testament teaching that says that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Now they know Jesus as who? Jesus of Nazareth. They are not relating him to Bethlehem at all. But we all know where was Christ born in Bethlehem. So they're rejecting the Messiah based on the fact that they don't believe he's from Bethlehem because the one of the prophecies claims that he will be from the line of David and he will come from Bethlehem where David came from. Now, what is the lesson in this for us? Again, really study who Christ is. Don't miss the fine points. They rejected the Messiah simply because they didn't take the time to investigate the fact that Christ originally was from Bethlehem by birth. He was not from Nazareth by birth. And all it took was probably a little questioning, asking his parents, asking his friends, asking those that knew him. By the way, where was he born? I know he lives in Nazareth now, but where was he actually born? And they would have said, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Wouldn't that have changed their viewpoint? But what an, an amazing and profound lesson that is when you think about what things have we maybe made mistakes on in life? What errors maybe we have made because of what? Assumption. They were assuming that Christ couldn't be the Messiah because they didn't know he was from Bethlehem. And that's where the Messiah was going to come from. So they knew scripture, but they weren't using it properly. And they weren't searching the way they should have. Very, very important lesson there. So their ignorant assumptions may have been their doom because they didn't take the time to find out what the truth was. And another lesson in this is the fact, and this is very important, especially in the modern church, Jesus is not who we think he should be. The gospel is not according to our opinions and our expectations. The truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the gospel, is from his word. Now, I don't think anybody that's familiar with what goes on in the name of Christianity in our world today can argue the fact that many, many people, the vast majority of professing Christians nowadays, are claiming to believe in a Christ that has been developed to fit their opinions and their expectations. They are claiming to believe in a gospel that fits their opinions and expectations. See, there's, there's a whole, I guess you could say, Christian industry that has been built around and growing for decades now in the world. And that industry produces easily palatable Christs and gospel of Christ 
for the modern world. Taking out the parts that are offensive to those of the world, sin, God's wrath, total depravity of the human nature, you see? And promoting things that are palatable. God is all love. He accepts everyone. Give him a try. You see what I mean? Jesus is not, does not conform to who we think he should be. His gospel does not conform to what we think it should say. We know Christ. We know his gospel only through his word and only through his word by the Holy Spirit revealing it to us, opening our hearts to that truth. Very important to understand. Acts 4, 11 through 12 says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So this is after the events we're reading about in John. This is after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And Paul is teaching them what we're talking about today. He's saying this stone was rejected by you. What he's saying is because you were looking for someone other than the Christ. You wanted a Christ that fit your own opinions, your own expectations, and your own idea of what the Messiah should be. So you missed who he truly is. You see? Very grave mistake. Now let's look at verse 43. John 7, 43. Now, because of these things that Jesus taught, and you could say because of the gospel message, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So there was a division, and that division was because of Christ, but it arose because of ignorance of Christ, ignorance of his gospel, and error surrounding it, just like we see in the world so much today. So I want you to just look at these following statements and I want you to sort of imagine them in your head as a montage in a film where an event has happened, a statement has been made, a teaching has been proclaimed, and now we're seeing responses, a montage. This person responds like this. This person responds like this. This one like this. This one like this. When they heard the words of Christ, that I talked about earlier in verses 37 and 38. So you can just say when they how they respond to Christ and his gospel. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. They, they said, okay, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. The Jews expected a prophet to precede the Messiah, and they thought that's who this man Jesus was. If you look at Deuteronomy 18.15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is who they thought Jesus was. They thought this was the prophet that was going to precede the Messiah, not realizing this is referring to the Messiah. Some people said this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Not the prophet and Messiah, but the actual Messiah. However, some possibly considered him to be the Christ as they had others. There had been other imposters that had, that had existed in Judaism that had been in that area that had claimed to be the Christ and they had led many astray. So many of them looked at him as the Christ, but as they had these other imposters. You see? And then there may have been some that truly believed that he was the true Christ of Scripture, that he was the Messiah. But what we have to understand is a good opinion of Christ is, uh, is far short of a lively faith in Christ. That's a quote from Matthew Henry. 
a good opinion of Christ is far short of a lively faith in Christ. So even if they acknowledged him to be what they considered a Messiah that may have been false, or whether they considered him to be the true Messiah, Messiah that had been pro promised to come to the people of Israel, even if they believed him to be the Messiah, that is not salvation. Salvation comes if they believe him to be the Messiah, they are led to repent, and they are led to place their faith and trust in him. That's where salvation lies, you see? So we see another response there. I'll reiterate that point with James 2.19. You believe that God is one, referring the Trinity is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So quite often if someone will tell you, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, that's really not that it's good, but it's not that big of a deal because even the demons believe in Jesus. They're probably very theologically astute, but they don't trust in him. They're not saved by him. You see? Trust and faith in truth is what matters. Some of the other people said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Again, making that mistake. This man's from Nazareth in Galilee. How could he be the Messiah if the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem? Another scene, some people wanted to arrest him. He's blasphemous. He's going against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. He's questioning the Jewish leadership. He's disrespectful to the things that we believe in right now. So he needs to be arrested for the things he's saying. He's claiming to be God. But it says, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because nothing happens that God does not allow. Some of the people, the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The officers give us a very good glimpse into how people should first respond to Christ. See, when the gospel is really going to move in someone's heart, and you know the Holy Spirit is doing a work on them, and they're being brought to belief, they will be fascinated by the word of God. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever spoke like this man. I think anybody that's come out of false teachings or wandered from the faith and looked at other things that are false, Realize how important that statement is. No one has ever spoken like Christ. That one's always meant a lot to me because I was raised a Christian, but I backslid for many years and I got drawn into false teachings. I'll call it some of them in the 12 steps. I relied on psychology and psychiatry. I dabbled in Zen Buddhism for a while, Hinduism. All those things were false. They all said things that were empty and none of them spoke like Christ, because only Christ speaks the truth, you see? Some of the people, the Pharisees said, have you also been deceived? How Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So the Pharisees, through arrogance, because of their standing, because they thought they were more highly educated than everyone else, we have the final say. If we believe in him, everyone should believe in him. If we don't believe in him, everyone should reject him because we are the authority on these things. We are the religious voice of this time. You see? Another big lesson there for the modern world. So many people on social media are making stars out of, uh, you know, so-called pastors, prophets, apostles, whatever, through social media and online and not testing what these people say being drawn away from a simple faith into following people because of popularity. 
And then one person, Nicodemus, said, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's saying, do we not test what this man's saying? So Nicodemus gives the wisest response of all these different responses that we've seen in this montage of responses to the things Jesus taught and the gospel message that he was proclaiming. So let's look at verses uh, 44 and 45. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? So the officers had been told to go arrest Christ because the Pharisees and the Sadducees realized that they had to silence him. They had to eliminate him because he would bring down all of the false teachings that they were standing on. John 7.32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. He was a direct threat to the heresy and the apostasy that they were putting forth, to the false teachings and the corruptions that they were involved in, just like he is now. That's why when you proclaim the true gospel of Christ, so many in the world will try to stifle it because it directly threatens what they believe in or what they're standing on. You see? So the frustration of the Pharisees is increased over the failure of the officers to apprehend Christ. They didn't do it, what they had been told to do. And the other thing this teaches us is that the most influential and powerful are made impotent by the words of Christ. Very important for us to remember in the times in which we live. So many people are despondent and depressed and so upset because now we've got this, uh, these two people as president and vice president holding office illegitimately in America, and everybody thinks they're, they're just going to destroy everything. They're striving to do so very rapidly, but they are powerless against the word of God. They are powerless against the sovereignty of God. So we look to the Lord. We rely on him, realizing that they are as nothing before him. You see, God's will will be carried out regardless of how much evil people try to thwart it. You see? Let's look at verse 46. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We talked about this before. So that is such an awesome verse, the power of the word of God. Now, if we look at John 18, 4 through 6, we actually get to see the word of God carried out in a very physical way, and we get a, a picture of the power of the word of God, a very vivid picture when they come to arrest Christ. says, so, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, this is as he was being arrested to go to trial, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The power of God's word can literally knock people down. I think we need to remember that. So often in the modern age, in the modern church, we're so worried about offending people. We're so worried about this false sense of unity. When our worry should be, is, the comp is, is God's word going forth in an uncompromised way? Am I proclaiming the gospel courageously, boldly, and confidently without compromise? If it knocks people down, that's what it's meant to do. 
If it offends them, it's not our problem. Because when you proclaim the gospel, it's either going to be a savor of life to life to those that will be saved through it or death to death to those that will be condemned through it. It's the working of God, not our working. We just proclaim it, but don't ever compromise it because you're worried about what people are going to think about it. Christ's doctrine is so powerful, it terrifies the wicked and it throws them to the ground. Why do we ever lack faith in what the power of God's word can do? We should never. You see? I just had someone contact me because they were so concerned about Celebrate Recovery and the 12 Steps being uh, in their church. And they wanted to know what I recommend that he could recommend to the elders to replace it. Nothing needs to replace it except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rely on God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. A church having these teachings in their doors shows that they lack faith in the uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ. You see? Got to get back to that. Now, sadly, many are impressed. The officers were impressed with Christ. No one ever spoke like this man. No one's ever said things like this. Even to the point of identifying as Christians who are not born again in Jesus Christ. So you may be impressed with the gospel. You may be impressed with Christ. You may even get warm and fuzzy feelings about the teachings of Christ. But again, salvation is not found there. Salvation is found in Christ. Repentance, belief, and faith, and trust in him. That's where salvation is. Very important that you test yourself on these things. This is why 1 John 2, 19 and 20 is so important. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they, are, are, they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So we know that not everyone who claims to be Christian is Christian. And in the world in which we live now, the estimate is probably 90% of the church is not truly saved, has no understanding of the gospel, and is entrenched in heresy and apostasy, because that's just how far down the road it's, it's gone. I'm not trying to be negative. It's just the fact that many very astute biblical teachers and pastors nowadays agree that probably 90% of the church is unsaved. So what that tells us is we praise the Lord because we are in the midst of a very ripe mission field, especially with the fear and everything else that's permeating American society and so much of the world. It's time to get back to the true gospel of Christ. You see? Let's look at verses 47 through 49. So now the Pharisees, it says, the Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is a curse. So we just see blatant arrogance here on the part of the Pharisees, this crowd. Why would you listen to them when we're the ones that are educated? That's what they're saying. The Pharisees witness the power of the word of God in the officers before them and try to turn them away from the effect Christ has had on them. So these officers are saying, no one's ever spoken like this man. It's fascinating. It's, it's amazing what he's teaching. And they discount it and say, no, if we don't agree with it, we are the authority. It's got to be wrong. Look at Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, 
The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Is that not a picture of what just happened there? These men, I believe many of these soldiers and many of these people that, that saw Jesus's teachings and maybe even outright rejected them once they either witnessed or heard about what had happened on Calvary, his rising from the dead, his ascension, and then seeing the beauty and the purity and the holiness of the first century church came to believe shortly after Christ's ascension. I believe there was just a, a many that had rejected him came to him because they witnessed the true power of who he was, and they came to believe in the gospel. But what we see here is exactly what's talked about in, in Matthew 13, 19. These soldiers may have been able to come to Christ at this time, but Satan automatically worked through the Pharisees and, and discounted what they said so that they questioned it and said, well, if the, if the Pharisees don't believe in him, who am I? You know, just a soldier. Why would I believe in him? I need to, I need to do what, what they say. That's very, that's been common down through the, down through the church. That's, the Roman Catholic church was able to grow as it grew simply through implementing ignorance within the populace. If we publish the Bibles all in Latin, we can tell people that they say whatever we want them to say. We make it illegal for people to read the Bible on their own. The only way they can hear the word of God is through us claiming it. Then you can, can totally control people that way. You see? Because you're controlling the narrative. We've got a perfect example of that. Look at 2020 in America. You see a corrupt political system, a corrupt mainstream media system, totally controlling a false narrative and making people do whatever you tell them to do simply through fear, not grounded in fact. So we see that played out in the world as well. It's very easy to control people if you can keep them from thinking, investigating, and stepping out of their ignorance and keep them trapped in fear. You see? So the Pharisees witnessed the power of the word of God in the officers before them, and they try to turn them away from the effect that Christ had on them. Now, what we learn here, and this is very important, is that worldly stature has no bearing on spiritual matters. Worldly stature has no bearing on spiritual matters. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. It seems the most effective, powerful, fruitful voices of the gospel down through history have come from very simple people. Anybody that's listened to me for any amount of time knows that my favorite pastor that I read constantly is Charles Spurgeon. He refused when given the opportunity to go to Bible college to do so. Why? Because the Holy Spirit laid on his heart that he had been anointed by God. He had been given his calling by God. He did not need the approval of man. He did not need letters after his name to prove that he was preaching the true word of God. So he rejected that offer. Would have made it a lot easier for him to have those letters after his name, but he didn't need anything other 
than the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Very important thing, especially for the age in which we live, because so many men that really, I believe, have started off with a true calling and they want to serve the Lord. They go away to seminary, they go away to Bible college, they hear opinions, they hear compromise, they hear different ways of interpreting scripture that is not led by the Holy Spirit, and they come out teaching what a denomination believes, what their professors believe, rather than what the Word of God says. And it's a huge problem in the modern world. Secular education, even with the label of Bible college or seminary, should not be a prerequisite for ministry, you see? And Charles Spurgeon is a huge, beautiful example of that. He was so prolific. He was so well-versed in Scripture, in the Bible, and he had an amazing gift by the Holy Spirit to convey the gospel in a way that everyone could understand. Very important lesson. But you know what? Just about any church you go into, you could not get a job in that church as a pastor or any kind of teacher unless you show educational credentials, which mean nothing from a biblical perspective. Another point along these lines, I've heard Christians for years say regarding a famous movie star or an athlete who flaunts sin and worldliness, they'll say something along the lines of they could do so much if they would just come to Christ. This person has so much influence and so much fame and so much money. If they would just come to Christ, they could be such a force for the gospel. But the truth is that they would do no more than God decrees as he does with every believer. God is no respecter of persons. Fame has nothing to do with the proclamation of the gospel. You see? All the authority, this is a, a quote from, a math, uh, from John Calvin. He says, all the authority that is possessed by pastors, therefore, is subject to the word of God, that all may be kept in their own rank, from the greatest to the smallest, and that God alone may be exalted. It's not about fame. It's not about popularity. It's pointing to the cross, it's pointing to Christ, it's proclaiming the gospel and doing it all to God's glory. Worldly standing and adoration are often a great trap in an eternal sense. Look at Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Such a difficult thing for, for humans to do. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Turn away from your own dreams and goals and aspirations and follow Christ. Very difficult. Often the humble disciple, meditating on the word, in prayer, gaining experience, and living in obedience to God, attains far greater wisdom and knowledge of God's word than the highly educated. I have seen this for years in ministry. Those simple, quiet, godly people who pray, who study the word, absolutely demolishing someone with a PhD in theology or divinity or whatever it is because they're being led by the Holy Spirit. I've seen it over and over again. Psalm 119, 98 through 100 says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed 
your precepts. Everything we need is in God's word. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Is it good to have counselors? Yes. Is it good to have fellowship and discuss God's word with others? Absolutely. But the ultimate guide is the Holy Spirit leading us in God's word and the message of the gospel. The arrogance and self-righteousness of the Pharisees and their hatred of anything contrary to what they believe and control are shown in their harsh cursing of those that were drawn to Christ. <clears throat> and again, that's a picture of what we see in so much of the world today. Now let's look at verses 50 and 51. So now we see Nicodemus's response. Nicodemus, he who had came to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So it says Nicodemus had come to Christ before. And if we read earlier in the book of John, Nicodemus came to Christ by night and asked him about the things he was teaching. So Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, and he had met Jesus earlier. And I was referring to chapter three. And again, he came by night that first time. There was something intriguing about Christ. There was something that was drawing him to him. I believe it was the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to know more about who this man was. What is it he's teaching? But because he was a Pharisee, I believe that's the reason he came by night, because he couldn't be seen in the company of Christ because he was so hated, because Christ was so hated by the Pharisees who he was one. So he acknowledged that Jesus was from God in three in John 3, 2, but probably did not yet acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. He was still figuring things out. And he still held his position among the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, which may have caused some to accuse him. However, in his previous meeting with Christ, the Lord had not commanded him to follow. This is very important. So we picture him coming to Christ, and that's the one Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot be saved. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus couldn't understand what he was talking about. But notice in that first meeting, if you go back to John 3 after the sermon today and read through it, you'll notice that he was not commanded at that time to follow Christ. He was just introduced to the person of Christ. And starting to get it, his first hearing, his first teaching of that gospel message. So, Jesus, so Nicodemus earlier had heard the gospel from the mouth of Jesus himself. And now we see later on, this is a few years later in Jesus's ministry, then Nicodemus, instead of just condemning him or making a judgment of who he was, says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So he said, let's wait a minute. Let's really look at what this guy's saying before we move forward. Now, something that's interesting may be to consider that in John 3, 16, we all know that verse, so God's for love the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. That may very well have been spoken by Christ in conversation with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus had heard the gospel from Christ himself. The seed of the gospel had been planted, and then I believe that after Christ was crucified, it ignited into faith in Nicodemus. He was brought to faith when he witnessed what happened the fraudulent trial, the crucifixion, and then the death and resurrection. That's why in John 19, 38 and 39, we see this where, where Nicodemus originally came to Christ by night because he didn't want to be seen talking to him. Now he doesn't care. Now he knows Christ is the Messiah. And this is where he's forsaking the world and he's leaving whatever he needs to leave behind, taking up his, Christ, his cross and following Christ. Because in John 19, 38 through 39, it says, 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So these two guys, who had believed in Christ secretly, but kept it secret because of fear of the Jews, now openly ask for his body, take it down and prepare it for burial in a very adoring way. So we see this radical transformation in these two men by the power of the gospel carried out right in front of them as they see the sacrifice that is made for their sins on the cross and now knowing that Christ has died for them. You see, they're still not totally privy to all of the gospel message because Christ hasn't risen yet, but they had known, they knew the Holy Spirit was working on them and they were willing to risk their reputations, maybe their lives by asking for the body of Christ, taking him down for the cross and putting him in the tomb. You see? So it seems like that Nicodemus in this portion of scripture was coming to the defense of Christ. He was using his position to help keep the authorities from hindering Christ. So we see this, I guess you could say this progression in belief if you study the character of Nicodemus through the book of John. And then notice how Nicodemus questions them about the law after their arrogant statement in verse 49. So they had just said, we're experts in the law. Why would you listen to these people? They, they got on the soldier's case about that. And then Nicodemus comes right back and uses the law against them so that they don't go after Christ right at that moment. So even in the most depraved and sinister places, the Sanhedrin, which was trying to eliminate Christ, God may have someone who carries out his plans and his will. God has his remnant in places we may never guess. So again, we're given hope by that. We can't despair regardless of how dark things may seem. God has his people everywhere. Then in verse 52, we continue. They answered them. They answered him. So now the, the Pharisees, their Sanhedrin responds to Nicodemus, and they say, are you not also from Galilee? You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So they're making that same mistake we talked about earlier. They don't really know where Christ is from. See, I live in Idaho right now. You see? So someone could say, uh, talk about this this Chad that they knew in California, and someone will go, no, that's that's not the Chad I know because he's in Idaho. Well, no, if they research my history, they would know that I originally am from California. So that ch Chad, one person's talking about, and the other person's talking about, is me, the same person. They didn't make that connection with Christ. They didn't take the time to investigate where he was really from. And because he was from Galilee, no prophet arises from Galilee, they discounted. They just figured he's not real. Well, like I said, it's so simple to just ask around and find out, is this man in any way from Bethlehem? And to find out, yes, that's where he was born. So the Pharisees seem cornered. And in response, they lash out at the crowd and the guards and even Nicodemus. The Pharisees accused the people of ignorance, yet raised the same question that some of the people raised in verse 41. So the common people were saying he can't be the Messiah because he's from not from Bethlehem. And then the Pharisees, arrogantly accusing the people of having no idea who the Messiah would be, used the same excuse that some of them used. 
So what a huge mistake to miss recognizing the Savior because of arrogance and assumption. Huge lesson in that. Don't take things for granted. Don't assume something's true if it hasn't been tested and proven. The Pharisees who place so many obstacles to the truth before the people blind their own eyes by placing a great obstacle before themselves through their hatred of Jesus. A little effort in investigating where Jesus had been born and raised may have opened their eyes and hearts to the truth of who he was. Huge lesson in this. In John 7, 53 is the verse we'll close with. Everyone went to his own home. God's powerful working brings all of the ruler's hatred and contrivances to nothing. They just give up and go home because they can't make a stand against Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, and his powerful word. So they just go home. But what we have to understand as we hear this message today is division arises because of error and error arises because of ignorance. And anybody that's been a Christian for any amount of time and tried to share the gospel with those that are lost or those that are trapped in false religions and claiming to be Christian, you'll constantly get that attack. You're causing division. You're against unity. They have no understanding of what they're talking about, but that is a common attack. Not realizing that the division that they're talking about arises from their own error and their own error that you're trying to help them see through to get to the truth arises from their own ignorance. And those who address error with the truth of the word are often accused of causing division, but unity exists in one spirit of truth. Error is the cause of division. So you cannot have unity in the church, unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot have true unified fellowship if you are not in the true faith. It's just the way it is. That's why Philippians 1, 27 through 28 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So the point I'm trying to get across today is abide in Christ, abide in his word, be uncompromising to the message of the gospel. Be confident, bold, and courageous when proclaiming it. Pray that the Lord would, would bless you to be surrounded and have fellowship with those that you can have true unity with. And do not be dismayed when division constantly arises because of error from ignorance. It's just the way it is. And like I've said to so many people, especially if you're in ministry, one thing you realize is the longer you walk with Christ, the fewer people you're walking with. It's just the fact of the matter, you see? Because so many will fall away because of for false teachings or whatever reason. It's just a fact of life as a Christian. And make it your life's ambition to know who Jesus truly is to be conformed to his true image, to carry his true gospel to the lost, to be united in one spirit with the brethren in Christ, the true body of Christ. And I'll close with Matthew 11, 
28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Is that not a picture of so many in the world today? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you so much, you guys, for being here today. I appreciate it. Um, we still need all the support we can get, and I hate to bring it up every week, but we have tremendous opportunities to grow the ministry right now online. Uh, we still want we want to move forward as soon as possible with a pastor's, I call it a pastor's training school in Kenya, but actually just a solid biblical doctrinal Bible school um, for anyone really that wants to learn just the truth of the gospel without all the influences of false teachings that's so prevalent there. And we have a perfect location for that um, in uh, Nairobi at my friend Patrick's church. He has classrooms already on site uh, that he uses for orphan children in the morning. Uh, so we really want to strive to get that going as soon as possible, but we need all the help and the support we can get in order to do so. 2020 has just been brutal for us financially because so many people have been hit, and I understand that um, because of what's been going on. But just please pray about it. Pray, pray to help the ministry. Pray for the ministry. And if you'd like to help us, you can just go to the way, the letter R122.org, and you'll see the donate page there, and you can help us out that way. If you'd like to reach me, you can email me at chad at the way, the letter R122.org. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have questions, prayer requests, if there's something you'd like me to preach on or something you'd like me to research, uh, just let me know, and I'd be glad to do so. All right, until next week when we will be back here, same time, same place. God bless you guys. Take care.